they're going to say things that you really, really love and you want to clap and do all that, we'll just wait till the end for any more clapping, okay? May our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, be exalted as he already has been and is, so we day of glory. Now, my assumption going on to the debate tonight is what I believe everybody will and wants to discuss, and that is Matthew 24, 3, the end of the age. Soon tell us, tell, Aeonis. That is in what is titled the Olivet Discourse. And what the Bible says about it, scriptures alone being the necessary, inspired, apparent, clear, and sufficient authority on this and all subjects, which must be rightfully divided by comparing scripture with scripture, as the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. Therefore, any experience, or especially now observation, is void by virtue of the proposition. You have ears, listen for it. Therefore, as a common theologian and barber, I'm defining the debate as what does the Bible say about the question posed by the apostles to Jesus in the Olivet Discourse concerning the end of the age. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. These things being the covenant sanctions on what Jesus declared woes about, and the blood of the prophets, and the destruction of the temple. Then, that Jesus told the disciples about prior to the passages with the question. And it's only detailed this way in Matthew 24.3. These things, and this parousia, this presence, and the question did occur within that generation because Jesus said so. He said all these things would, and he identified his audience in 24-33. And this ended the Israel-specific age of the Mosaic economy, the soon tell us, the completion of the joint action of these things and Jesus's, the, the these things and Jesus' parousia, his presence, the end of the age. And elements can be proven by the scriptures and also external historical accounts. Um, the latter speaking of the destruction of 70 AD, which I'm sure we can agree on at least that historical fact. And this is Israel's eschatology, and it's accounted for throughout all of Matthew. John the Baptist came <laughs> speaking about the at-hand kingdom of the heavens and the about-to-happen wrath, and Jesus came and again spoke the, the gospel of the kingdom that was at hand. Jesus then sent his chosen apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not the Gentiles or Samaria, and told them that they would not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Later on, in chapter 16, he tells the disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. And he tells them that, for the Son of Man is about to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he would repay each one according to what he has done. And then telling them, some of them standing there with Jesus in that moment, that they would not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We can fast forward to the parable of the vineyard owner and Jesus in condemning the, uh, the elders and chief priests there because, and, and what they got from that is they understood the parable. They were talking about, or Jesus was talking about them. Then, see, Matthew wrote in that generation, to that generation, and about that generation, just as Jesus had spoken. This generation is spoken of many times in this account. You can see 11, 16, 11, 20, 12, 38, 45, three times there. And then, 23-36, the immediate contextual setup. There is no indication that the whole or part of the meaning, to the contrary, that the meaning of this generation in 24-34 is the same meaning as all the others. 
This then is now that. The logical conclusion to any other worldview, I want to talk about that here. So this position that I have put forward on the Olivet Discourse and the meaning of the end of the aeon is this evening. Appropriating some C.S. Lewis demonstrate that, demonstrates that Jesus is Lord, and any other position makes him a lunatic at best or a knowing malicious liar becoming the Deuteronomy 18.17-22 false prophet, the charge that should go against Israel from Hosea 9. And this is because, as I predict, a lot of future U.S. now claims of the other views that we'll hear tonight bring their a priori interpretation of this discourse into their proof text and then bring it back into the do so in argument. So please hear it. The discourse cannot be used as a presupposition for any future to us now claims due to the direct audience and the time limiters used this generation, these people, and this time spoken. So, to say it positively, is if you had this as your presupposition, this text kind of facing, and you couldn't make sense of the particulars, you're okay. Because it's just kind of analogous to not knowing the day or hour, but knowing the generation. So, this is the position to take by necessity due to the metadata of Matthew. These things, all these things, this generation, and the U's, if you look at it, and they are in control of the particulars and not the other way around. So, just to finish here quickly, let's think about this. Let's approach Jesus and his words here with the same faith that he asked of our past brother. He says so the same thing in Luke 
In the Gospel of John, we read this in John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is significant in the words of our Savior because when you get to Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, there is great reference of Satan or, if you will, Lucifer being cast down either into the abyss or onto the earth. Revelation 20 has a stronger way of putting it, saying that he has been bound so that he might not deceive the nations anymore. I want to emphasize something to you. He is bound not to deceive the nations of the gospel message. It is not that he is bound and that evil is no longer occurring. We certainly see that, do we not? It is not that he is bound and, and uh, that way we can achieve some sort of sinless perfection and ultimate sanctification will occur now. No, it is that the gospel still goes forward. I believe this is a strong evidence for the amillennial perspective, a perspective you ought to consider this evening when you think of Revelation 20 as being something symbolic and happening now. Revelation 12 actually uh, seems to say it a little bit more. It says, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom and our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The Old Testament, for example, when you think about Satan being bound and no longer deceiving, the covenant of the Old Testament and the Old Testament believers was a little bit more specific to a certain people at a certain time in history at a certain place in the world. Satan certainly was deceiving the nations at that time. But now we read in Scripture, especially when you read through Acts, the gospel certainly is going forward. This is only possible because Satan is bound now. God ruling, Christ ruling in his kingdom now through his church. It is this position that most makes sense in one of Jesus' parables, a parable we ought to take very seriously. In Luke 12, the Savior tells us a story of the servants who are awaiting their master. He tells their servants, he says, of the servants that they ought always be ready for his return, not to worry too much about the signs that might occur, when he might come back. They, they, they should not sit around acting as if he might come back anytime and then pick up their rooms as if he is coming back and to, to save time and make it look like they were working. No, he says, do your work now, be faithful now, and one day I will return. That loosing of Satan that's mentioned in Revelation 20 may very well come in the twinkling of an eye, as Thessalonians would tell. And we have to be ready for when that happens. And this can only be uh, achieved in biblical faithfulness if we hold to an all-millennial perspective. I would put that forward to you this evening. The gospel is going forward because Satan is bound. If you deny that, there are serious questions we ought to consider this evening. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I was once told that a debate would ensue if two or more gathered in his name. Tonight proves true. So tonight's topic is, what does the Bible teach about eschatology? Now, there's a variety of texts that we can prove many different positions, and each one of us has that special, that special 
text that we can grab a hold of and hold on to, but the real question is, what are the plain texts? What are the texts that we have to construct an overpass to get around? What are the hard texts that we must deal with? Now, I assert that there are a few texts that we have to deal with. I assert that it's the nature of the resurrection that we have to deal with. I assert that it is the nature of the resurrection in relation to the parousia, or the coming of the Lord. And I also bring forth that the continuity of revelation provides stumbling blocks for any system. Now, if there's two physical resurrections, you have to square that with your view. And if the parousia and the resurrection are connected, then when Christ comes back, there will be one resurrection, followed by a millennial reign, as outlined in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Revelation 18, 19, and 20 are linked in a progressive outpouring of the book of Revelation, then we can see a continuation of one unfolding story. See, this, this uh, my view here is not is a little bit different than my brother over here for uh, dispensational premillennialism. See, while we both believe that the millennium will come before Christ returns, uh, or sorry, after Christ returns, we are far apart. Historic Hellenism teaches that there is one way of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. There is no sharp distinction between the two camps. The Gentiles have been grafted into the promises of God. See, there is there's this fulfillment of all the promises in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible does not teach that Christians will be spared the tribulation, but instead we will persevere through it. There is no parenthesis of the church, and this means that there is no secret rapture to spare us from tribulation. And I do not believe that 1 Thessalonians verse 4.16 refers to anything quiet, as it says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now trumpets and shouts are not secret nor quiet. Instead, this is a glorious declaration, a declaration of a king. And furthermore, if the rapture is before the tribulation, wouldn't Paul have qualified it with a statement as a thief to his fellow Christians? See, the rapture is loud and evident, but it is also real. It is physical. See, the rapture is also linked to the parousia, or the coming of the Lord. This is what we see in Matthew 24, verse 31. As it says, And he shall send forth his angels with the sound of the great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one heaven to the other, from one side of the heaven to the other. And this sounds a lot like the rapture described in 1 Thessalonians. Now, how do I systematize this view? See, Christ descends out of heaven, he raptures his people, they come down with him on this earth, and they physically reign for 1,000 years. Now, this 1,000 years does not have to be a literal, hard-nosed 1,000 years, but it can be used symbolically to represent a full, superior number, or perfect expression of time. As Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and cattle upon a thousand hills. Now, the best way to capture historic criminalism is to look at 1 Corinthians, verses 15, 20 through 26, or chapter 15, verses 20 through 26. As it says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all men be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God, or hands over the kingdom of God to, to God the Father, and abolishes all rule, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. We see in these verses outlined here that Christ is the first fruit. We see that at his coming, the dead will rise. This is the parousia, or the coming of the Lord. This corresponds wonderfully with Revelation chapter 20. We see that there is a resurrection when Christ returns. He will reign in the place, all rule and authorities under his feet. And the last enemy will be destroyed at the final resurrection. Death will be no more. Now, this is an important term, resurrection. 
Now, the term resurrection is used over 30 times in the New Testament, and every time on a space this is used, it refers to a bodily resurrection, not a spiritual one. Now, John uses the term in his gospel, do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked to the resurrection of condemnation, John 5, 28 through 29. Now, if John uses the term about a physical resurrection, and every other time it is used in the New Testament, then we must conclude that when it is used in Revelation, it is referring to a physical resurrection. Now, the book's immediacy, talking about Revelation, is expressed in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 22, verse 6, in the terms, short that it come to pass, or quickly that it come to pass. Now, the immediacy is important, but this is the outpouring of this prophetic book throughout history. See, Revelation is just as relevant to the first century Christians as us today, living in the 20th century. In the 21st century, Revelation is composed of several leading chapters. Revelation 18, 19, and 20 is composed of this, and this flows with one another. As a prominent author and scholar, George Allen Ladd notes, chapter 18 tells the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19 tells the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20 tells of Satan himself, destruction accomplished in two stages. Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan form an evil triad that are closely linked in chapter 13. Now, these three are also mentioned in chapter 16, 13. John's visions have this twofold perspective, and the struggle portrayed in Revelation is that of Christ and Antichrist. This means the symbols portrayed in Revelation are relevant to the first century Christians and to us today. The New Testament expresses this tension between eminence and perspective. The time is near, and yet it's far. Therefore, when we come to the book of Re Revelation, we see there is a recapitulation, but chapters 18, 19, and 20 do not show evidence of this. Instead, they flow together in sequence. There is two physical resurrections present in the text. We can, we can actually take one to mean physical and the other spiritual. We cannot take one to mean physical and the other spiritual. The Greek is the same, the context is the same. This poll may that if we take a historical grammatical method of interpretation, <laughs> we will conclude that there is two resurrections. Thank you. Well, last year when we had a debate, I swore I would never do another debate, and now I don't remember why. Bear with me. Of the four approaches being discussed here today, dispensational premillennialism has the distinction of being the most recent. There's some minor debate about that, but it is safe to say that this particular system of eschatology began in earnest in the 1800s, thanks to a Bible teacher named John Nelson Darby in Britain and C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible fame here in America. For some, the relative newness of this system of eschatology is an issue. Some would argue that the theory closest in time to the early church should be more highly regarded. But I've come to find that that argument lacking. See, for many years, as I looked at the modern church, I would think, if only we could know more about what the early church was like and what they knew that maybe we don't or that we've forgotten or lost. If we could be like that instead of the mess we are today, that's what we should be striving for. But as I thought about that idea,
I didn't have to say a word about the name, dispensational premillennialism. I'm not particularly a fan of the name. And the, the dispensational part comes from Darby's understanding that all of human history was marked off by seven dispensations or eras. I don't find this teaching completely compelling or necessary to the overall system, and others have reached the same conclusion. Dwight L. Moody shied away from the dispensation part of the teaching. John MacArthur, in his systematic theology book, Biblical Doctrine, says that his stance is a refinement of dispensational premillennialism that he calls futuristic premillennialism. But in general, dispensational premillennialism is what this view is known as, and it is sometimes informally abbreviated as dispy. So if you hear somebody call somebody a dispy, then that's, that's what they're talking about. Besides Moody and MacArthur, dispensational premillennialism has other well-known adherents, such as H.A. Ironside, Donald G. Barnhouse, R.A. Torrey, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, Norman Geisler, Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah, Jack Hibbs. Uh, I can keep going. You, you've heard them on the radio. Uh, you've, you've got their reference Bibles in your library. What I'd like to do is walk through the end times timeline as dispensational premillennialism sees it. The church, from the time of Jesus' ascension until now, is busy about the work Christ assigned, making disciples, while waiting for an event known as the rapture. Now, if you pull up your Bible app and do a search for the word rapture, you're not going to find it. But, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17 in your Latin Bible, which we all have, of course, you will see the word that is translated as something similar to caught up in the English, is a verb form of the noun raptus. So the rapture is this event spoken of in 1 Thessalonians, where Christians are caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. After this is a seven-year period of time on the earth called the tribulation, or the great tribulation. I want to address a couple of things about this. One is that there are disbies who believe that the rapture will take place halfway through the tribulation, uh, rather than just before it. This is a minority view, so I won't really be taking time to deal with that. The other is the question about why the church should expect to be raptured out of this tribulation. After all, Jesus and Paul both taught that Christians should expect persecution. Why would we not go through the tribulation? The answer is found where the rapture is mentioned and is based on the purpose of the tribulation. The tribulation is an outpouring of God's wrath. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that Christians are not destined for wrath. Further, as we study the book of Revelation, after we get past the introductory letters in the first three chapters, there is not a word mentioned about the church at all until we get to the end of chapter 19. Following the tribulation is the second coming of Christ. You may say, we already have the second coming of Christ? It's the rapture. Well, no. The description given in the first Thessalonian text has us meeting Christ in the air, taken up with him. It never has us coming back down to earth. That's what the second coming is. It is Jesus Christ returning to earth to rule. The period during which Christ will rule upon the earth is known as the millennium. This comes from Revelation chapter 20, which talks about Jesus reigning for a thousand years. Dispensational premillennialists typically understand this to be a literal 1,000 year period, although as my brother mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but that's typically the understanding. I think that's very likely the best understanding of it, but I could make a case for, for it not having to be. After the millennial reign of Jesus, there will be a final rebellion which Christ will put down. After that will be a final judgment. 
and the new heaven and the new earth. That's it. This is the dispensational premillennialism overview of the end of times, and this is why many of you, this is what many of you have grown up being taught and hearing preached by preachers and theologians that you know and trust. Tonight's movie greatest of ideas that contradict with these godly men. But my job is just to, is not to fight with these guys, but just to remind them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Questions. I want to start out with some yes or no questions here. Um, but um, let, me, uh, let me ask you guys. Just get some yes or no's just right down the line in front of you. So, were there in the first century, at the time of this writing, were there false messiahs written about in the text of Scripture? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that. I'll say to, to false messiahs, no. False prophets. Yes. I can all concur, yes. False prophets. <coughs> are, you, are you saying yes there are? I, I would concur with, with Adam, there is. Okay. I, I believe there was. I can't remember a reference for it, but uh, I seem to recall that there were. And were deceiving me. And were there famines recorded in Scripture in the first century in the writings? Uh, oh, in the first century. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to think about it. Yes. 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 And were there earthquakes within that first that generation written about in the text of Scripture? Yes. Were there persecutions of these people? Yes. yes. Did they betray one another, hate one another, lawlessness ensue? Yes. Was there great distress in the land? Yes. He came in a way, so partially yes, but with qualifiers. This is one of those questions where you know somebody set me up. After his ascension, he did not come in a physical way. In a physical way. 
Now, the bad news is, did he tell that the angels that were around the disciples did? They say that uh, you will see him as you see him leave, or did the angel tell them he will just come back in the same way? You, go, you take it up first. Um, that is because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus was speaking about events that would take place, would believe them to be fulfilled in 70 AD. They would be um, what I would frame it as, perhaps you can critique this, or anyone can critique it, as a partial fulfillment of um, Jesus' words with uh, uh, obviously awaiting his ultimate coming uh, because if Certainly, he came in the fullness of his judgment and taking us all up. We would not be here now. You can work. Did you ask the question again? So, it seems that to me, could you tell me uh, why it seems, I've got to screw this up with you, um, why it seems that Jesus is the only one that's like warning anybody about the destruction of the temple and it's coming. And then you get to the other New Testament writings, and it's just all about the, the rapture and basically the future to us now. Um, in that passage, uh, Jesus had made a somewhat casual statement that uh, that the temple would be destroyed, destroy. uh, and then his disciples asked him about it uh, for follow-up, and they asked him uh, multiple questions: When will these things happen? Meaning these things about the destruction of the temple, and what is the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age, these are actually. Did any of the apostles in the later writings talk about this? No. No, Thank you, my fellow. Colton, you didn't get a chance to respond. If you would like to respond, you can, but you don't have to. Uh. Yeah, I just want to read this here from uh, D.A. Carson, who notes on this very passage, and he says, giving a long example of the Greek and so on and so forth, he says, immediately after the distress of those days is a clear reference back to the Philipsis of verse 9. It says, the great distress, thus the celestial signs and the coming of the Son of Man 
Do not immediately follow the abomination that causes desolation, but the distress of those days. So the entire period is future. Just so you know, this is the most fun part. <laughs> Although I do like, I do like it. It's fun to present. Uh, but it is also fun to ask questions. Usually in normal conversations, you don't get the, you know, the luxury of just being able to have them sit and respond to every word. Usually, this will be, I hope, an enjoyment. An enjoyment. Um, we'll not be questions. Um, Adam, I want to direct the first one to you. Uh, you may mention, and you can put it in your words if you want, but did you make a claim that other positions would say that? Christ is not king presently. Was I following you correctly on that? Oh, no, he is presently. So I don't no, know. I'm asking if that's what you said of other positions. Well, I said this makes him Lord. So any other position um, that differs with this position on the Olivet Discourse um, would then show that he's a liar. Okay. Okay. I stated numerous times that I believe Jesus is Lord now, which is why my position is somewhat acceptable. If he is Lord now, then he is that is the absolute truth. Uh, Dennis, I want to uh, direct my next question to you particularly. In your opening statement, you uh, made the claim, or at least you asserted to the idea, that it would seem outrageous, and I believe you're correct, that the church or believers would experience God's wrath. How then, um, and then thus ex absolving them of participating in the tribulation. Um, am I correct in that's essentially what you stated? <laughs> I believe so. Okay. So let, me ask, let me ask this question. Let me ask this question. Here we have Revelation 9, presumably in the middle of the tribulation. We have um, the trumpets going off. We have the locusts that would come up from the pit. Uh, take it symbolically, literally, nonetheless, you have these scriptures. Uh, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, uh, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Does that not seem to presuppose the idea that believers who make a distinction of those who would have the seal of God on their forehead present during that time? Yes, that would that would imply that there will be believers at that time. Um, In the middle of tribulation. Now, now I do know actually. Let me make sure here. You did you did say. You believe the rapture would occur in the middle of the tribulation or prior to? Actually, prior to. Prior there, to. Are, there are many tribulations, but I'm not okay. representing that. Either. Okay. Well, tonight, I want to direct a few, um, a few questions to you, if I may, brother. Um, what do you believe the first death to be when Scripture references that? to the ideas of the second death. And of course, then it would be the second resurrection. Uh, first death, can you make context? Can I ask a clarification? Um, 
just generally, does Scripture ever reference a first death generally? Uh, I would say yeah, first death, yes, in our physical death. Physical death? Would you say that the fall of Adam and Eve was perhaps the first death? Yes, I could agree with that. So you would agree then that the first and second deaths could be interpreted symbolically and that the first resurrection is the resurrection we are experiencing now by dead souls coming to life. Uh, yes, if we ignore the term resurrection. Yes. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I'll get to, I'll get to uh, a portion of that in my rebuttal. I don't want to crack that open now because uh, I certainly have some words for that. But, but, um, you said in Revelation referring to um, the resurrection, particularly in, uh, uh, I believe it's Revelation 20, that it must refer to physical resurrection. Yes. Must, yes. It must. Yes, Revelation chapter 20. So you would deny it ever being um, symbolic resurrection? Uh, I would say context doesn't allow it. Context doesn't allow it. I think apocalyptic literature can have a lot of things, but we have to take a historical, grammatical method of interpretation. If we come to the text without a proper hermeneutic, we can really make anything say what we want it to say. So would you say that you are relying more so on a historic uh, interpretation as opposed to what the text could also be faithfully alluded to? I would say that I am interpreting Revelation the same as I would interpret uh, John and his words. I would 
slightly differentiate that between uh, the victory he has over sin and death and the complete victory he will have over those things uh, later on. My next question, um, in Revelation chapter 20, where it talks about the first resurrection, uh, what is the first resurrection? Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Um, it says, blessed, are, blessed and holy are the ones who share the first resurrection. I would take that to be sharing the first resurrection. Since Christ is the first resurrected and we share his resurrection, I would say the first resurrection uh, has to do with our spiritual regeneration from right. death to life. Okay. So it's to do with our spiritual resurrection. Uh, or spiritual. Uh, what is the second resurrection then? I believe the second resurrection will be complete glorification when we reign in heaven with him forever. Okay. When does the millennium take place? I believe the millennium is taking place now. Uh, one last question. In Isaiah 65, <laughs> verse 20, uh, talking about the new heavens and new earth, uh, common referred to the millennial passage. In verse 20, it says, No longer there will be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. Uh, is that talking about a spiritual death or an actual physical death? Certainly, I don't have all the time to answer that quickly, but since I am taking a more of a symbolic interpretation of these things, I would say uh, that would not be a literal death. And, uh, yes, that's Adam, we got a few questions for you. Uh, how do you separate the catching up of the saints in 1 Thessalonians, uh, or in, in uh, Matthew 24, verse 31, from the rest of Matthew? How do you interpret Matthew 24, verse 31? I would say what you're doing there is exactly what I said in my original statement. You are taking a presupposition, an unargued conjecture from Matthew 24 into that text. Yeah, I was asking, though, what does the text say? In your, in your interpretation of the text, what does the text say? And in my two ways, my two part way to answer questions, the part of my apologetic is I answer, lest you be wise in your eyes here. And so that is an irrelevant thing. It's in the future for one that's not my identical backdrop to argue with my definition. Also, it's a, you know, again, you are presupposing Matthew 24, bringing it into that text, and then bringing it back to Matthew 24. Uh, just trying to harmonize. So, are you saying, I'm asking you for your interpretation of Matthew verse 24. <coughs> what is the catching up? What, what were, who were gathered there? What is, what is that context talking about? So, what, what, uh, what verse are we talking about again? Matthew 24, 24 verse 31. Who is Christ, or who are the angels collecting from the ends of the earth? Oh, that, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry about that. But anyway, there, so they're gathered there, saying, and so that word is synagogue. He's going to synagogue his elect. Um, he, he came. This is in First uh, yes, Timothy one, and he will send forth his yes. angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather. Rob wrote a book about that, mm -hmm. about the angels and messengers, and that they're not always uh, angelic beings, but they're people. So he sends out people. He synagogues his elect. So that means. Uh, would you agree with the language here in 
chapter 24, verse 31, mirrors that of 1 Thessalonians verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 16, as it says, with the great trumpet they will gather, and Thessalonians also talks about a gathering. Yeah, um, you'd have to make another case for that, because I'm talking about the synagogue that came whenever Jesus came in that generation. Next question. Where do you see? Uh, I would I would assume that you you would agree with uh, Gabriel about the binding of Satan. Yes. Where do you see the binding of Satan in relation in relation or equated to the gospel going forth? In the well, text, for one, I mean it's evidence in Acts. So the gospel goes forth. So I, I do agree with with, uh, with Gabe on that. Where uh, you had the you know, Jesus after he sent out the apostles um, the first time he said I saw Satan fall from heaven. But where does it talk about this binding of Satan in relation to the gospel proclamation? Would be Matthew twenty. Again, I just have to say, even if people don't get this for the audience answering this question too, is uh you don't have all the particulars, okay? You have the universal control of the
Did God have a special relationship with the ethnic people of Israel? Yes. Do you want to guess another guy? Yeah. Um, briefly. Uh, I, I would say, I would say uh, yes, but I would also pay careful attention to the fact that um, Paul says one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is circumcised in the heart. Yes, sure uh, that. Plus, um, he did make a special relationship um, with Israel um, because of the prior to Abraham. And that's where you get this gospel going to the all nations when it comes to the New Testament. And that's where you get this spiritual people because we are children of the promise. So it's always been about all nations. It's always been about God's choice. And God is working this out through history. And so see so again when it comes to my my position that the seed is really kingdom here. Um, that's the way it's worked out in a more even greater sense from the garden to the city. Looking to follow up with that to make sure I understand what you're saying, that, that the special relationship that God formed with his covenant with Abraham was to not to ethnic Israel, but to uh, it was to them because of Abraham. So it presupposes it. I'd say he has uh, have to define well ethnic Israel. Um, I think Paul makes the uh, assertion that not all of Israel is of Israel in the Book of Romans. Therefore, it would be those that have the faith of Abraham that are the true Israelites, just as you could have apostate Israelites in the Old Testament so far in the New, and so on. I would say the same thing. You see the strong expression of Paul saying he would give up salvation for his brethren, but I think that also supports the fact that he uh, believes Jewish individuals are not nearly ethnic. Yeah, you got to recognize in the covenant um, with Israel, he was bringing in the nations already. So it was a it was a look at us coming in. So Israel was always a melting pot of the nations, and so that was a covenant of works that has covenant blessings and cursings. And so therefore, that's what poured out in 70 A.D. Uh, Jesus coming upon the clouds to the ancient of days, and at the same time being seen here on earth um, with the destruction of the temple and uh, the gathering of his people, which are the nations. And so this believing Israel, just like um, the wilderness, 
um, judgment. There was an unbelief that they were as a party, and there was ones that survived, that God chose and brought out. So there's always been remnant. So he has a special relationship with all the nations. And he did bring it through Israel, though. And then again, for our body, it's 70 AD, where he put the covenant sanctions down because they killed his son. I would just want to make the distinction, again, ethnic Israel, yes, insofar as they are believing Israelites and follow after the Messiah. I think that's you can see there's there's benefit um, for anybody obeying God's laws, even if they're doing it out of disobedience or hatred. Uh, 
uh, at, his, at his death on the cross and his resurrection from a, a, a church uh, period of time. So there's only one way of salvation, and that is belief in and trust in, in uh, God's Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, however, uh, I think Israel is uh, very plainly distinct from the church, uh, despite the fact that there are texts uh, that do remind us that, uh, 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 that do compare the church to a, to a spiritual Israel uh, at the same time, and, and these, these gentlemen have noted it, that, uh, uh, that Paul says, talks about actual ethnic Israel. He talks about my brothers, uh, my brethren. Uh, in uh, chapter 11 of Romans, he's talking uh, not about spiritual Israel at that point. He's talking about his actual uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. And uh, God has uh, unconditional, unfulfilled promises to Israel from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, God does not break his promises. Uh, and uh, so those promises still remain to be filled uh, and did not end uh, at AD 70. Uh, and so we will see that. Um, uh, also, uh, uh, there's an interesting uh, text I want to look at real quick. Luke chapter 1. Uh, this is when the angel is talking to Mary and telling her uh, about the baby that she will have. Uh, then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, when Mary heard that, that her son would get the throne of David, what did that mean to her? That, that meant something. That meant something about Israel. And the angel knew that. The angel knew what Mary would think when he used that expression. If, if I made you a promise using terms that I knew you understood in a different way than what I really meant, would you consider that to be dishonest? So, there we are. <laughs> I'd like to know, did things happen in the first century? Yes, they did. But the curious is, why is it limited just to first century context? We see dual fulfillment so many times throughout Scripture. So I find it odd to limit it just to one. So we see in Isaiah uh, 7.14, the Son should be given to us. His name should be called Emmanuel. We understand that to be Jesus. We understand in Second uh, Samuel chapter four, or verse, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of his son, or sons of men. We understand that as applied in Hebrews chapter 1 to Jesus Christ. So it has a second fulfillment, but in the immediate fulfillment, it was Solomon. So I find it odd that when we come to the book of uh, Matthew, that we limit it. And Matthew's already used the fulfillment multiple times. So when we come to Matthew 24, could those things have happened in the first century? Yes, but why couldn't they have happened again as another fulfillment? <clears throat> Satan is bound in a sense, but we can still see deception and deceiving happening throughout the New Testament. We see in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, evil people and apostles will become worse in deceiving and being deceived. So deception is going on. 
it's talking about deception, I would say, marring the gospel. So the gospel is thus being hindered. So what is this binding of Satan then referred to in Matthew? The binding of the strong man. Well, not being referred to the supernatural powers that Jesus was exercising as he was casting out demons, as he was going on, so on and so forth. Satan's supernatural powers were being limited. I don't see a text specifically saying this binding has anything to do with the gospel going forth. And then again, in Isaiah 65, we have this interesting occurrence where we have the millennial reign of Christ described, and yet it says that people die. As I read the verse, No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought cursed. So, during this millennial age, where it's supposed to be a spiritual, symbolic millennial age, there's death still occurring. How can we have symbolic death in a millennial reign that results in real people dying? So, the death described in Isaiah 65 is a real death. Um, In Matthew 24, verse 31, the gathering of the people, again, it's talking about a complete gathering of all his people from across the, the world. Uh, tribulation. Dennis uh, mentioned tribulation. But tribulation is described throughout the church, throughout the New Testament, occurring, as Adam pointed out, over and over and over again. One interesting note is the concept that we will be raptured, and then Jesus will descend onto earth. But it says we will always, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says we will always be with the Lord. So, I don't know how we can be with the Lord, yet not with the if Christ returns, and that's the parousia, the coming of the Lord, and the rapture occurs, then we are with Christ at that moment, for now and forever. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says. So we can't really have a spiritual, not a spiritual, but a, a halfway coming and staying with the Lord. I will concede this I want to start with a quick note um, across the board here. To my left, the brother said that, uh, that we agree that uh, Christ is Lord now. Uh, there will not seem to be much disagreement, and we both seem to agree, so perhaps my position can be conceded more than he would be willing to admit. I'd also like to respond real quickly to my brothers here on the right. Um, Then is stating that it would seem that the text does not imply that people would not see the glory of, of Christ, despite the fact that uh, believers have been raptured up. This seems to me to cut against Romans 10 and 14. How can they believe if they have not heard? If seeing is all they must rely upon, they are no 
no better off than those who did not believe yet saw Christ die on the cross. There is a great disagreement here, and these are the nuances that we cannot uh, touch on as much as I would like to now, but there is a great disagreement on a hermeneutical approach when one um, interprets the binding of a strong man. While it might seem, again, that the epistles, or even in Acts, mentions of deception, you have to remember you are dealing with literature on epistles. When Revelation 20 mentions a great binding and deceptions, you are dealing with apocalyptic literature. He doesn't like to distinct that. He prefers to take the plain meaning of the text. That can be dangerous if you're mixing two genres and coming up with a term to mean the two, regardless of what the genre determines those terms to mean in its context. Satan, when I mentioned, for example, this was not mentioned in the rebuttal, nor was it posed to me in any of the cross-examinations, and we make this clear. I mentioned in the Old Testament how it seemed that you have the covenant Israel, the covenant uh, people, Receiving the goodness and the blessings of God while the rest of the nations are simply referred to as just, to put it in modern language, dirty, rotten pagans. They were completely and utterly deceived, save for the Israelite people. That is not happening today, though God is allowing Satan, much like he allows the restraint of Satan in the life of Job, to deceive some because the Lord is allowing them to be blinded. That implies a restraint. If Satan were completely loose to do as he pleases, he would treat the church no different than he treated Job's family. It seems to me that the advancement of the gospel is still occurring. We gather this time to enjoy as a gathered group of churches in a specific place at a specific time to come around the gospel, to share the gospel. Our Lord Jesus, when he sent the 72, will minister and tell me of him, and Satan was bound. Satan is obviously still bound because the gospel still goes forward. We are products of that benefit. And until the Lord returns, that gospel will still advance, and we have a blessed hope that not even the gates of Hades would prevail against it. Unless and until that is disproven, my position stands. Thank you. All right, yeah, sorry for all the stuff. I always have all the stuff. I don't have stuff anymore. But uh, I just want to thank you guys again uh, just for your study and your time that you took to do this debate and gave thanks for the nice shot.
because, again, like the question I asked, why does it seem like Jesus is the only one that ever talked about this stuff, and all the other apostles are just talking about to like now to us future? Because they're presupposing it. They're bringing their presupposition of Matthew 24. That into their proof text to the proof text there, and then bringing it back into Matthew 24. And that only really happened once or twice here, you know, just uh, with uh, the double fulfillment thing. That's called a hearing to get you off the case there. It's not really an argument against my system because remember, they were waiting for Messiah to show up, and he did, and it's finished. The kingdom, if you look at Daniel, all those successful kingdoms happened, and then the mountain of the Lord grew, and then the rock comes and tumbled down off the hill, and then hit the clay and iron feet. That's uh, the uh, collusion of Rome and Israel. Busted all those kingdoms, and immediately that kingdom was established. Yeah, get that in Isaiah. So, just to let you know that. But nobody's really um, debating me tonight in my definition. And on the other side of it, they've already agreed that most of those things happened in the first century, and that a coming happened. Except for the NC, there is a coming. And so the question is, like, why can't this be the coming that Jesus is talking about? And I have to say, it can't be that coming because it's not their system. The coming of, because Jesus in, uh, let's see, in Jesus in John 14 talks about him and the Father coming to his people. That he had to go away, but that he would be coming back to them. That's very confusing. Until you see a bunch of people speaking in other languages that they didn't know before, looking all drunk to the people out there around them. And then Peter coming in going, this is Joel too. This is that. And you know what else is kind of better included in that language? The sun, moon, and stars language. In the same passage, that's happening. That sun, moon, and stars is the government, the leadership, the, the Judaizers, the Antichrist, the false teachers. The Satan, and so they already agree with me. So, in a way, they're not debating me, but they're actually making my case for me implicitly. It's just they're too busy with their systems. And it's really confusing. And I hope you guys can see through these things. But yes, Jesus did come. And it happened in Acts 2. And if you look at Matthew uh, 24, you see lots of lightning from east to west. You go back to, so let's go back just to Matthew's content. If you go back to 8.11, it says that Whenever the, the centurion came with his faith to Jesus, Jesus didn't see that kind of faith from God's people. Till, but he saw a centurion, a Gentile centurion. He's like, look, I have not seen this much. Like, this guy's kind of faith in Israel. And he turns and goes, many will come from where? East and west. To come sit at Abraham's table. Abraham. Isaac, Jacob's table. And the son of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness. So what's that light? There's horizons or horizons to land. It's the oiky minute. It's the household. The household that he went to. The household where he went to the temple and cleansed it twice. And what does the Leviticus say if the leprosy is still there? Jesus followed the law perfectly. And he came down in judgment in 70 AD on those people. 
ending, and especially with his death, becoming the sacrifice, transforming the whole thing. So they didn't lose anything.
This sounds a lot like Matthew 24, 24 verse 31. Again, I asserted that there's two resurrections. I want to say that there was no dispute against that. So good. I asserted that Revelation 18, 19, and 20 are one continuing story of Revelation. There was no points of contention, so I can see that as well. I also said that parousia is linked to the first resurrection. That is well held. So we can see that there is self-fulfillment, again, throughout the text of Scripture. We can see that uh, there is two resurrections, as I stated. One is tied to Christ's first coming, which is the parousia, the millennial reign of Christ. The both, resur both resurrections are physical. The context really validates it. One is labeled the first resurrection, while the other is the second, or the one that results in the defeat of death. The parousia and the resurrection are tied together, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Matthew 24, verse 31. And Revelation 18, 19, and 20 are this unfolding, continuous chain, not a recapitulation. Not a refolding of the same story three times, but one story reading front to back. If all these things are true, then I do seriously think that premillennial historicalism holds water. Why? Well, because how can you have two resurrections in any other system? Besides, brother over here, Dennis, he would hold. But we're also again promised to go through tribulation. So. I would just like to note that if the parousia and the resurrection are connected, when Christ comes back, it will be followed by the millennial reign, as outlined again in 1 Corinthians 15. This all goes into this system. Um, I don't have much else to say on that, so I'll just waste my time. So thank you. Is it time already? No. <laughs> <laughs> I just got here. Time for my kid to go to bed. <laughs> I too want to extend a great thanks to the Apologetics Network for you inviting uh, a lonely individual like me to come speak. It's a humbling to get to present. Uh, it's always humbling to get to speak on scripture uh, publicly as well as uh, privately. I want to utilize some of my time to um, make note of a few things. I reference a couple of texts. In Revelation 12, when you see Satan being cast down, that deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him, and then a loud voice from heaven said, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and authority of Christ has come. Salvation has come. This only makes sense if Christ bound Satan during his time of ministry and reigns now. That is exactly what we see. I didn't uh, reference this text, but it's in the synoptics. It's in Luke 10. This is a corresponding in Matthew 12. Same scenario, a slightly different perspective. Where Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not reject this, and the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's gospel language, my friends. The gospel is involved in the binding of Satan with Jesus' ministry. Even if one denies it by a, uh, trying to take on the plain meaning of the text, it is quite easy to see 
the comparison between Jesus' words and his ministry and what John wrote for us in the flesh of his time with Christ, as well as what he and what was revealed to him. I do want to know, just as a friendly, just as a friendly shaking of the hand over here from my brother, um, the reason there's not a great bone of contention between us is because we actually do kind of hold a similar, I hold a very similar to his. Though I would argue that um, to utilize the proper name of the position, partial preterism does not deny amillennialism. Um, my position still stands and stands strong. If you don't know what partial preterism is, please come see me or my I want to take time just to note the fact, dear friends, that the fact that we live in this age. We live in a time in which Christ is ruling with his church, and he is saving his people. Much like he kept his covenant promises in the Old Testament with his people, so he keeps his covenant promise with us in this present age. An amillennial perspective holds that strongly. And that is so beautifully complemented when you read Revelation 20, the glory of that Christ shows the, the fact that it is the gospel that is put forward, not in anticipation of his reign, but his current reign as king, not just as creator, but as savior. I'm grateful to get to uh, speak with these brothers. They made great points, and I think that they have put up a good case But I think, just to put a cherry on that my position, while not historically held uh, by some early church fathers, just because something is not historically held does not mean it is not really faithful reading the text as the author intended it to be. Uh, and like I said prior to um, me speaking here, unless and until that is disproven of me, my position stands. Thank you. All right. Again, thank you guys. Again, I just can't say, say something. Say this enough. Thank you guys for doing this work uh, and debating with me. It's been awesome to be with you guys. Also, you guys for actually coming out um, on a Sunday night before the Missouri Baptist meeting. So, thank you guys for coming out. I hope this has been edifying. Um, but mostly, again, like I said at the very beginning, that I hope Christ is exalted as He has already been. And as he is right now, and we all know it. Even if your position denies it, you know it. <laughs> so anyway, I took this position as he he rooted me out. Yes, partial creditism. Um, so it is part of the post-millennial. And so yeah, it just goes in how so our debate is going to be on uh, a lot of the other prophecy in the Old Testament. So you know we're, we're cool there, there's a lot um, to be said. Um, but I didn't take that position because I wanted to expose the presuppositions of what I used to believe. And uh, what I find rampant that, you know, I, I believe is uh, not right to teach. Okay, so, but, development over time, uh, post no guy, we've got a lot of time to work this eschatology thing out. Okay, so it's okay, we can love each other, brother and sister, we're going to disagree on a lot of other stuff. But again, we've got to exalt Jesus as a word now, and then go because of that. So I took that 
um, just to expose it, and that's really what I did, just to let you know, I did do that. Um, the, the systems weren't exposed, for sure, and uh, the presupposition, uh, the show you that math 24 is a big deal to know, so please go home and, uh, and study that, and, and do your right hermeneutics, learn hermeneutics through utilizing that, uh, using why utilizing that. So again, um, not really too much debated tonight, so I'm just going to concede, um, as Dennis would uh, probably, he's, a, he's expecting me to, maybe with a ton of adjectives, but I won't. <laughs> My position went uh, without a whole lot of it, went out with a limber um, on the other side, so you know, I'm just uh, with, with Colton here, I'll take his stand as well. But, uh, <laughs>
And that's going to be in the last days. And that's what we're heading to because of the gospel. How much more time do we have? 30 seconds. 30 seconds? Well, guess what? Um, I talk a lot, so this will be the first time I can see you sometime in the debate. So, so we did it.